0: we zoom out the lens and look at the history and what's the biggest change that's happened in in our lifetimes it's really this digital transformation that we've undergone everything from how we date to how we eat to how we work to how we relax to how we exercise everything has been completely changed by uh, the digitization
1: hello and welcome to art goes on a podcast featuring art people on how they keep the art world running Here, they will share their vision of the present and a glimpse of the future. I'm your host, Pierre de Montesquieu, recording from Paris, France, so please, pardon my English. Before we start, as we try to make this show interactive, here's a quick reminder to follow our Instagram account, at askartgoeson, where you'll be able to ask questions to upcoming guests. Now, onto today's show. This is the first part of a talk in two episodes. Today I'm happy to welcome Jason Bailey, who runs ArtNoMe.com, a blog where you will learn everything on the art world through the lens of digital, artificial intelligence, data, blockchain, and so on. Hi, Jason.
0: Thanks for having me, Pierre. Uh, Excited, you know, with everybody stuck in their homes, it's uh, exciting to have the opportunity to talk to somebody about the subjects that I love. Uh, I love my wife and I love my dog, but uh, I'm ready to talk to some other humans.
1: Good for us. So, Jason, how art is going for you?
0: It's good. It's interesting when a a crisis like the the pandemic hits, You know, in some ways we need art more than ever, but how we interface with art has to uh, change a little bit. So for me, uh, my whole life, since I was a very little kid, uh, I regularly, you know, every few months go to the museum and it's where I get my, my therapy. My blood pressure goes down. It's my connection to history to, you know, it makes me feel like I'm part of something larger all the crazy people throughout history with the most interesting ideas, you know, the, the work that they created ends up in these museums. And one of the biggest things um, that's been hard for me is to not be able to go to museums. There were a few things, you know, that I had lined up that got canceled. So I was supposed to present at South by Southwest, the big conference in Texas. I think that was the first thing that I had set up that was canceled and I had booked my hotel and my plane and I thought, well, this, this will be quick and it will be back to normal. And then I, a month later, I had a presentation at the International Society of Appraisers that was canceled in Denver. And I was excited to go see that, but that was canceled. And then I was curating a show tentatively with a, a publisher in Mont- Montreal called uh, Antiism. And I had reached out to a bunch of artists and was going to work with Kate Voss Gallery. And we ultimately decided that that had to, to cancel. So, you know, I was a, a little bit sad on all those fronts. But then, you know, art goes on, um, as, as you say. And, you know, I found other ways to engage. So now I'm working on a show, again, with Kate Voss Gallery that'll be online. That focuses more on generative art, which is digital. So it's it's easier to do online. And I've had some great opportunities this year. I wrote the cover story for Art in America in January on generative art. I think it's a great sign that the traditional art world is starting to embrace some of this art that I love so much. And then uh, just a week or two ago, I published a paper on uh, using machine learning for the valuation of art and predicting prices for art with uh, Harvard and um, MIT Press. So, you know, I've just shifted the, the way I engage a bit more towards writing and things like podcasts and away from traveling. And it's, it's not so bad now that I'm used to it. I've been able to find ways to engage thanks to the, the rich community and folks like yourself that reach out.
1: I'm curious about your background because art and tech don't often match, or only recently. Could you tell us more about your story?
0: Ever since I was ver- very, very little, all i've ever wanted to do was to be an artist though they were my heroes when i was very young it's you know it's it's been consistent through my whole life but i grew up in a family of entirely of engineers. So it doesn't mean that engineers don't love art. I get my love of art partially from my dad, who is a, a, an engineer, but my father was an engineer. My older brother is, is an engineer and my younger brother is an engineer. So what people think, they, I think they think I'm joking or exaggerating, but literally every single conversation, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 18 years was about the latest technology and, you know, math and, 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 things that I was not particularly good at. I think part of it is I didn't think I was good at those things because that was really their specialty and it wasn't what I was great at. So I learned to, to listen um, most of the time and ask questions and try not to ask dumb questions because it wasn't, you know, that wasn't my passion or my area. But you can't help but growing up in that environment without actually learning a whole lot, right? So I would go off um, on my own, sort of an introvert and spend lots of time drawing and painting and writing and reading, but was surrounded by this technical um, environment. So I got my undergraduate degree focusing on painting and sculpture and printmaking and studio art and art history and thought that I would teach. And then I realized I didn't really want, I was going to teach high school um, and I realized I didn't want to be back in that environment. I hadn't really enjoyed it the first time around. So I needed a job, like lots of people with art degrees, and I ended up getting a job through uh, a connection through my father at a, a technical uh, medical product development company. And my job was to interview the engineers and help make videos and help do graphics and things like that. And I realized that by listening to technical people talk for you know my whole life growing up, and having to ask questions without being embarrassed and simplify and break things down, that that's actually a very valuable skill. So I, I for my full-time day job for the last 20 years, I've worked in sort of design and marketing and at cutting edge companies that work with machine learning and data analysis. And I can listen to and talk to some of the smartest folks in the world and patiently ask questions and kind of translate their ideas without losing the sophistication of their ideas in a, uh, into a format that other people can understand. So that's sort of my day job. But it also changed the, the, the kind of art that I made. Uh, I went back and got my, my master's degree, my MFA, 10 years after getting into the work world. And really dove into generative art in the intersection of art and tech um, and started making my own work, but also just grew an appreciation for, for generative art. And yeah, that's how I've ended up sort of this hybrid world. Most people I know start in math and move to, to art or start in engineering and move to, to art. And I was kind of the other way around.
1: And indeed, I think that ArtGnome is the most articulated information source about this field. But the general public and even a large part of the art world are still confused about it. Generative art was born maybe in the 50s or 60s, but today everyone is talking about AI and crypto art. Could you please enlighten us about those different notions?
0: So I think in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, we started seeing... Uh, people in computer labs using, you know, computers were hard to get to. Um, they could fill rooms and getting time on them. You had to wait in line and people would use them for very serious things like, you know, for military purposes or, you know, for big companies. But uh, a few people managed to to get in and start creating artworks that were sort of geometric based um, kind of artworks. So people like Georg Nies and uh, later on Vera Molnar and Michael Knoll. Um, it couldn't be popular because um, their computers weren't popular yet. People, Not that many people had access to computers, right, and couldn't really understand it. And really, artists in a traditional art world, even though artists are usually the first people to embrace new things and new ideas, and that's an important role, when it comes to tech, they tend to be a little bit more afraid. And I think it's often we fear what we don't understand, and they worry, you know, are these robots, or is this tech going to replace artists? So, you know uh, it was a very slow start through the 60s 70s 80s right the the art world arguably even now has been very slow to to embrace but with every new technology that comes out what artists can do changes and expands so while ai has been around also you know I, I I might get this wrong, but I think at least since the 50s, it comes and goes in waves. So there's a thing called the AI winter where there's too much hype and then it kind of pulls away and then there's too much hype and then it pulls away. And we just recently went through a phase where machine learning in particular, right, which is this process of a subset of AI where we teach machines by feeding them a lot of information and having them learn and then uh, create an output that uh, is based on those learnings has become really popular. So artists are doing things with machine learning using GANs. And I won't go super technical, but people can look up GANs. They're generative adversarial networks. And in the last two or three years, when people get really excited about what they're calling AI art, what they really mean is machine learning art. And what they really mean when they say machine learning art is art made with GANs. Yes, there is more work being done, arguably even more interesting work being done in other areas. But everything you see in the news is, is mostly around GANs. I've decided that that work done with machine learning and AI is a subset of generative art. Uh, when I write about it, you know, it's generative art to me is any artwork where there's a certain amount of randomness introduced and the artist is writing a program that produces the, um, the output. And uh, while the GANs and machine learning are a new form of that, I think they still fit my, my loose definition. Now, going back to how new technologies produce new opportunities for artists, completely separate from generative art, blockchain became really popular in you know, the last five or six years, You know, maybe three or four years for the art world. And I think the art world has this need every year to have something new to write about and talk about. And when I say that, people think I'm being insulting, but I'm not. I think we all have a need um every year i get bored of things too we all have a need every year to do something new so two or three years ago uh, i think the art world sort of latched on to this idea of blockchain and and what could it mean for the the art world and prior to that there was more of an underground arts movement um so there was cryptocurrency like bitcoin and ethereum that people may be familiar with are currencies that are provably rare and usable because they're uh limited and distributed. So anybody can go and look and see how much has been produced. So this allows people to use cryptocurrencies online, like a regular currency. The art market and the art world became interested and kind of latched onto this. But prior, it was really, you know, a, a group of folks that were interested in cryptocurrencies that were producing artworks that the idea of decentralization is that because you can have a smart contract that uh, or a program that can execute without human interference. You don't necessarily have to have an intermediary. So with currency, the way that works is you can cut out the banks, which people like because they think, well, you know, in the past when things go bad, the, the banks can shut down. Or if the government's in charge of the currency, um, the government can print more money. But if you have a smart contract in place and it's decentralized, you don't have to worry about what what we would call the middleman. So what they thought would happen in art is that um, this would do away with like gallerists and, you know, people like in museums and auction houses. And, you know, the artists would get all the money because it would be decentralized. And there's a lot of really cool things that came out of blockchain and crypto art, a, a whole movement of people that are motivated by this technology, but also by this idea that, you know, we could change the art world and make it more decentralized. And instead of having just a small number of very wealthy collectors supporting just a small number of um, artists who seem like the superstar artists, maybe we can have a, a broader, healthier distribution with lots of collectors and lots of artists and nobody can say which artists can show and which ones can't. So this was all the vision but it turns out just putting your, your artwork on the blockchain um, or tokenizing it doesn't mean people will come and buy it, right? And I think that was the mistake that a lot of people made. They assumed that there was some magical formula about now that it's tokenized, even though no one was interested in my artwork before, maybe now people will come running and want to buy it because it's tokenized. And that's, that's not been the case. Where it has been um, healthy and helpful, I think, is for Provenance, right? So it's a tamper-proof system for Provenance. So as people launch, uh, create and launch these artworks on the blockchain, you can tell who made them and if anything's been changed and you can prove that you own them. And that combined with digital scarcity, which is really the most important part of the blockchain, you know, for years when, People made digital art. Part of the reason I think it was slow to become popular in the art world was that if I make a JPEG and put it on Twitter and you can see it and everyone can see it for free, why would you give me money for that JPEG, right? And if you're thinking like a traditional collector, well, using the same principles that um, allow you to know that every Bitcoin is unique so that you can use it for a currency you know, we're able to transfer that same thinking to to art and say, okay, there's a token that backs each of these artworks, and it's provably rare, the token is. And you can tie that token to uh, an image of the artwork that's stored decentrally, which means that no one person can necessarily take it down, which gives a lot of people, not everybody, a lot of people enough faith to start participating in this new crypto art market, right? So where generative art is using computers to produce art with programs. And there's sort of this back and forth on some randomness. You know, some really complex artwork can come out of it using some, some fairly simple um, and elegant code, right? It's an, an aesthetic in the early generative arts. You see sort of this geometric aesthetic. And then now with the more machine learning oriented art, there's, you know, sort of this Francis Bacon look that people might be familiar with, you know, scary mushy faces, Right. That's the generative art side. The blockchain side is really a new technology that people are using, decentralized database that people are using initially for commerce and now for its properties around digital scarcity to see if we can evolve a new crypto art market, right, where the artists have a bit more freedom. So the two are a little bit separate, but you you certainly have examples of artists that are doing generative art um, and tokenizing it and and offering it on a blockchain.
1: And generative art can be physical and not only seen on screens or computers?
0: Yeah, yeah, it can. Actually, I'll I'll be in a little bit over my head, but before we had digital computers, I believe we had things that were considered like physical computers. So there was a a famous uh, artist whose name I'm going to forget, but he adapted a World War II bombsite computer And it's a a physical machine, but it can compute, right? And he used it to create these really terrific uh, drawings. You know, it's it's something sort of poetic about adapting a machine designed to drop bombs on people to create um, art instead and create new things. Um, But I I think it's um, programmatic or systematic, you know, production um, of artworks that include some degree of randomness or pseudo-randomness. So, People that are far more technical than I am get angry at my looser, high-level definitions, um, and they'll give you like a book-length long dissertation on what the definition is. But I think if we ever want to get the general population to, to get excited about generative art, we need to be um, uh, a little bit kinder and simpler <laughs> in our, de- our definitions.
1: Yes, it's still a niche within the contemporary art. Do you think that the lockdown is an opportunity to give it more visibility? Because with video and photography, it is the most screen-compliant art form.
0: I think there's a huge opportunity even before COVID. To me, I'm not surprised that the the art world in particular is behind. I mean, I think you know art history well en- enough to know that art history is just a sequence of rebellions over and over and over again, right? So... Um, you know, people are in the salons and then, you know, uh, people are upset about that. So they go off and, you know, build out their own art shows. And even it's a series of renegades against renegades against renegades. Marcel Duchamp submits his, you know, his urinal into a show of artists who are pretty forward looking artists. They thought they were the renegades and he was a renegade within the renegades, right? And then we get photography and everyone says that's not art. And then the abstract expressionists go against photography by, you know, the non-representational. work. So there's, you know, I didn't do it justice there, but I think everybody knows, you know, even up to the, the 1980s with graffiti art, which no one accepts, and now everyone wants to buy and sell, right? So I look at the the, the cold reception that generative art and computer-based art in general has received in the last 20, 30 years, and the signs that um, it's been rejected as heavily as it has tells me that it's probably a really good chance that it'll be considered canonized and considered very important in the future. It's usually the work that, that people push back on the most that becomes the most important. And then, you know, I I say this a lot uh, when I talk to folks and uh, it's because I mean it, I, I actually think generative artists are the most important artists of our generation And the reason I say that is because if you look at what's the most important thing in your lifetime, in my lifetime, if we zoom out the lens and look at the history, right, and what's the biggest change that's happened in in our lifetimes, it's really this digital transformation that we've undergone, right? Everything from how we date to how we eat to how we work to how we relax to how we exercise to, you know, everything has been completely changed by uh, the digitization in computers and the internet, but it it feels, because we've lived through it, it's hard to realize just how abrupt and how much things have changed. So if if you fast forward and you look at, well, what's the important art from our generation? It's going to be the art, in my opinion, that uses the tools of our time, right? That uses computation, not just computers, because you can use a computer like a paintbrush, right? But art that uses computation itself and programs, right? And uses those things to think about at a deeper level, how are those tools changing the rest of our life, right? So, you know, using AI to create art, thinking about what AI could do to or already is doing to, to the way that we live, right? And uh, for those reasons, I suspect that all of these artists are sort of dramatically undervalued today. Um, and, you know, the rest of my, my speech sort of on my soapbox Again, if we look at our art history, we've always done a pretty lousy job of celebrating the geniuses, you know, uh, and and waiting until they were dead, which I think is unfortunate. And if we look back at that pattern and say, okay, we have brilliant people like Vera Molnar, who's in her 90s, right, and she's like a pioneer of, of generative art here's our chance to actually celebrate a genius, you know, while she's alive, who's making some of the most important work that's, you know, that's of our generation. So we'll see, you know, I think that we're seeing some small changes. A lot of museums are doing shows around generative art and AI art, things like that. And, you know, maybe it'll take hold. I have confidence in the long run, that will be the work that shines. I don't think someone will look back 20, 30, 40 years from now and say, wow, this person had a new painting technique, um, you know, on canvas or something like that. You know, I think, it's gonna be something around digital
1: if we compare it to photography that took almost a hundred years to be recognized as an art form and also because of the dealers who started to open photo galleries in the 80s and started to build markets what is the landscape of the AI or generative art galleries or market? also considering what you've said about the fact that some crypto artists wanted to court cut the dealers
0: so this is where I think there's a lot of potential for, for generative art and crypto art to dovetail. There, there are two things that are interesting to me, but it turns out that a lot of generative artists, traditional generative artists, they don't necessarily, in the Venn diagram, they don't necessarily overlap with uh, sort of the revolutionary crowd that are excited about the social potential of blockchain. Sometimes they do, but not all that often. So I run into, you know, in the early days, I would go to some generative artists I know and like and say, hey, blockchain is really a great way, tokenizing work and blockchain is really a great way for me to support you and collect your work. Would you be interesting in, in doing this? And sometimes they do it. But for the most part, I think the generative artists still want their shot to be recognized by the traditional art world, the brick and mortar galleries and the museums. And those are the things they grew up wanting. And they don't necessarily want to jump past that and go into building this new crypto art world. I I wish they did. And I think it'd be great if more of them wanted to. But to be honest, I think they want traditional success. Now, on the other side are the crypto artists who most of them aren't generative They just they happen to use computers to make digital art and some some really great art in some cases. And their goal is more about upending this traditional art world and saying, you know, that world is sort of broken. And, you know, let's do something new and different. Now, where I where I have faith that everything will kind of shift more towards digital and and blockchain is when you look at the contrast between generations. So not just uh, familiarity with computers, you know. So you think about baby boomers versus someone uh, from Gen Z or the the millennials who who grew up with computers from a very very young age, right? So there's that side. But socially and culturally, at least in the U.S. and I think you know true in, in most of um, you know the world, there's the biggest gap in opinions, social opinions and political opinions between generations that I've ever seen with. Gen Z and boomers um, at each other's throats and not getting along, right? And when that happens, back to this idea of revolution and art, they're going to be very eager to do whatever it is that pisses off and drives the the boomers crazy, the younger people, right? So the idea that, let's just take crypto art, for example, it's, it's pretty difficult today just to get an account set up just to figure out how to use crypto art to buy something and then you're buying a JPEG that everybody else can see for free. Well, that drives boomers nuts. And I think younger folks actually like that there are some barriers set in place to make it harder for older folks to get into their world and get past the the com- technical complexity of getting into collecting these things or whatever. And then I think the kinds of topics that are covered in the art... The art that younger folks want today is very, very different from the the art that older folks want. So I wonder, you know, we're about to head into the greatest wealth transfer in in the history of the world. That's a known thing uh, because the boomers are a very large generation and they've acquired a lot of wealth through time periods that were relatively productive for them. But they'll be moving on and leaving money for the younger generations. And I wonder if the younger generations are going to want to collect the artists that were popular for the last 30, 40 years, or if they're going to want to do something intentionally very, very different to carve out their own their own direction.
1: And what about the galleries that are dealing this kind of art?
0: The markets are starting to shift towards the digital in two ways, top down and bottom up. So you, you look at like uh, the Zwerner viewing rooms and things like that, right? Uh, that people are more familiar with in the traditional art world. And the older art world, uh, more traditional art world, Is always going to try to start by approximating something that they had that was successful in real life before, right? So they're gonna show you a photo of a a white cube with something that looks like a painting, even if it was created digitally on that wall, because that's where their bread and butter came from. That was their success, right? So with with COVID, if everything is shut down, it doesn't really behoove them to come start from scratch. They need to try to replicate what they had. And that's that's pretty normal and human. You know, you think about when we swap from books to the Kindle. We still wanted to hold something in our hand. We, we weren't ready to just get rid of something physical altogether. And now I think most people actually listen to um, audiobooks, you know, and it doesn't really matter where the device is, right? Same with music. We had records and then cassettes and then CDs. And then it took us a while to get comfortable. You look at the iPod, um, we still needed something physical. And now we're comfortable with this idea that the music doesn't live anywhere, right? But there's this walking through. So I think the Zwerners and the the, the blue chip galleries are trying to recreate what they're making, the iPods. They're trying to recreate the the physical world in the digital, which to me um, is not as exciting. But I understand if you're going to walk a large audience in that direction, you have to do it. From the bottom up, the, the crypto art world, people like Super Rare are building these galleries that are uh, based fully on the blockchain and decentralized. I don't think they're trying to reproduce that world as much, although sometimes they, they do. There are debates that maybe the crypto art world is slowly starting to just replicate what we saw in the old world. But there's an opportunity when um, you have nothing to lose and you're starting from the bottom up. To do things that are revolutionary. You know, uh, Super Rare can do revolutionary things that Zwerner can't, cause Zwerner um, has to, you know, continue their success, and Super Rare has less to lose, to be honest, right? So I I'm a little bit more optimistic about the bottom-up approach than I am the top-down.
1: The first part ends here. Hope you found it interesting, and we'll jump to the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Art Goes On. If you like what you heard. Feel free to follow and share the show on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on YouTube. Leave a rating or review to help people find the show. Thanks again.